Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I'm married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're re- Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email from a client who had said to me, Carol, I need to get back in to see you. You know, I felt like things weren't progressing the way I wanted them to, and so my husband and I discovered. I decided to work with another therapist. But the therapist really didn't understand about sex addiction, and so I felt like she was blaming me for everything. Now, the truth of the matter is, um, oftentimes therapists don't know what they don't know, and that's why it is inherently important for you to go to somebody who has understanding in sex addiction. Whether it's a CSASI, you know, that's a Christian sex addictions therapist, or a CSAT, a certified sexual addictions therapist, it's got to be somebody who understands your dilemma. Because if not, you're going to be wasting time. This person was really upset. She was upset because she thought that I was going to hold it against her I, that she didn't feel things were progressing fast enough. And what I know is that things do oftentimes move very, very slowly in this field. You know, I used to be a therapist who saw somebody in eight sessions or less, and I would spread them out every three or four weeks. I worked for a hospital setting that really pretty much required that we only see a client once a month. And what I know to be true is that that is not the work of sex addiction or partner betrayal. You have to be fairly accessible 
to your clients, at least until you get them out of the crisis management stage of sexual addiction. And so when, when I have an addict, whether he's married or not, who comes in and is really wanting to work, I want to connect him with as many resources as possible, and I want to see him regularly because I want to fortify what I know is the toughest addiction to manage, sex addiction. And I want to assess for trauma, and I want to assess for family issues, you know, Maybe he's married, maybe he's divorced, maybe he's separated, maybe he's never been married. But I want to, I want to check out all those family um, issues. And so I didn't blame this woman at all when she said to me, I didn't feel like we were moving fast enough. And I so appreciated that she got back with me. You know, it's kind of hard when you, you leave somebody, especially in this business, because if somebody's unhappy or somebody doesn't think it's going well, they just kind of disappear. Very few people say, hey, this is how I'm feeling and this is what I'm thinking and this is what I'm going to do, which I love that. I just had a couple last yesterday, not last night, but yesterday, and she basically said, is this as good as it gets? And I said, Gina, that's a fake name, by the way. Gina, I've been telling you for the last six months that he's not going to change and he's not going to increase his recovery tools and he's not going to move forward. I am not a miracle worker. I'll be happy to work with you on your boundaries because ultimately the ball is in Gina's court now, right? She has to decide how is she going to handle the fact that she doesn't feel safe because her husband isn't working a good enough program. And that's a tough issue. It was a lot more simple when when the codependent approach came into the world that basically 12 support groups said, eh, you let him, leave him alone, let him do his work with us, and you do your work, and maybe in a couple of years we'll get you guys back together. Uh, I said that was a lot simpler, but not for the couple or the individuals. So I'm taking these people back. Yeah, of course I am, and I'm going to work with them, and I'm going to pace them, and I'm going to validate and acknowledge the fact that she's sick of waiting. But I also know that this is a couple that they were doing good work when they left me. So I can't believe that they would not not do good work again. Speaking of working. Um, today, we're going to be talking about something that I have never talked about on the air. Uh, and I heard this woman, I saw her responses to some issues on the listserv. And so I reached out to her, Fonders. And it's kind of like this whole COVID thing has really taught us what at least a certain type of first responder is. And, you know, this is a woman who's seen the trials and tribulations 
that first responders experience due to the pandemic. And so I knew she'd know what she was talking about because she's also a trauma specialist and has worked with first responders, so she knows how traumatized they can be. Of course, my question is, do first responders medicate with sex? Because what I know does, and firefighters do, and EMTs have a higher rate of sex addiction than other professions. And so my guess would be, and I'll have to find out, and I'm, this is one of those things you kind of hope you're wrong, but my guess is that first responders have had so much stress in their life that, yes, they too are especially susceptible to maladaptive coping like sex addiction. So we're going to be talking about, you know, the unique issues that occur to first responders and what they can do better care of themselves and what are they doing to stay in good, clean recovery, whether it's from alcohol or drugs, sex, gambling, you get that. And I'm just really looking forward to finding out more about it. And I'm hoping that, you know, you'll learn something too. I, you know, again, I was in Naples with some of my girlfriends in June. And I had picked them up at the airport. And I had started to take a right on a red. And right when I started, I saw where it said, no right on red. And so I stopped. And this woman hit me. And, you know, what I knew was that it was really my fault that she hit me. I was moving forward. She was going to move forward, too. We were both going to illegally take a right on a red. Um, And, again, I didn't know that I was doing anything wrong. So the good news is that um, I very clearly... got out of that lane and into a parking lot and stopped. And this woman walks out, and she's in a full nursing outfit. And I get out of the car, and I say, I am so sorry. I know I caused that accident. Even though you hit me from behind, I caused it. And she goes, no, I am so sorry. I just finished a long shift. I'm exhausted. I wouldn't pay attention, and I realized after you started to go right on red, that I couldn't do that either. We were both in the wrong. And I said, yes. And I was in a rental car, and nothing was wrong with my car, but hers was um, cracked. And my girlfriend's in the car started immediately saying, thank you for your service. Thank you so much. This was, again, in the middle of COVID because it was last June. And if nothing else, I really believe we appreciate first responders of any type, in any way. Uh, We forget how they put their lives on the line in so many different capacities. And that's why I'm really excited to be interviewing Dr. Gina Dunkel today, 
who has a family of first responders. I think she's married to a first responder, and she's made it her mission to really work um, with first responders to help them in their coping. So I am excited to have her on the show, and I want to welcome Dr. Gina to Sex Carol the Coach. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Oh, just fine. Did you hear my story about my car accident with a first responder? No. I did. (laughs) Yes. Well, actually, I mean, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, actually. I, I, you know, I think that, uh, absolutely nurses are first responders. So we'll, we'll be talking about that. (laughs) Yes. And I felt so bad because in a court of law, she was in the wrong. She hit me, but it was really my fault because I started to go and then I stopped. And then she started to go and hit me, and I, I hated that. But I was saying that my friends in the car just gave her all sorts of accolades, and we need to remember to do that, don't we? Absolutely. Yeah, um, I'm actually in Washington, D.C. right now. Um, I'm, I'm, in, I'm usually in Texas, but um, my husband is here in Washington, D.C. for a while, and so we're visiting for the weekend, and um, my daughter was chasing some first responders down the street yesterday while we were out on a walk, and she was like, and they looked, you know, when people run at them, sometimes they look very, like, concerned, and they had this look of fear in their eyes, and then she was like, thank you, and she's she's five, so she's, like, yelling at them, and they're like, thank you. <laughs> and uh, they just look so relieved, you know, that someone's seen them and that someone is aware that, that they're there to help and um, that they're not upset with them in some way. And uh, I think we forget to say thanks. I mean, it, it happens all mm-hmm. the time. So, Well, and so just tell everybody, you know, you said nurses are first responders. Who do you consider to be? first responders? Yeah, so first responders is a huge term. Um, It's law enforcement. That's what we traditionally think of is law enforcement and EMS and firefighters. And and actually it goes beyond that. It, It goes to the dispatchers and then we have what we call secondary responders, and those are the tow truck drivers, the ER physicians, the ER nurses, the coroner's office, the chaplains, basically anybody who shows up at the scene initially um, or in support of the, of the initial incident itself. So there's a whole bunch of them, and um, they all wind up with the same mental health stuff. And um, they have, and and we tend to just focus on those, on law enforcement, and and then we focus on fire, and then lastly is the EMS folks, which is, I think is actually pretty unfortunate. And there, there's a lot of reasons why that is, um, mainly because typically EMS doesn't work for uh, a, a city entity; they're private. So we have like private ambulance companies and whatnot. So it's easier mm-hmm. for them to kind of get lost and, um, and forgotten. So they, they don't get touched as often uh, with mental health as, as I would hope. 
And then all of the secondary folks, the dispatchers especially, because they're actually the ones most of the time who answer the call first. And um, I, I, was, I was talking with some, some dispatchers at one point, and they were, uh, they were talking about that nobody ever remembers them. And I was like, I remember you. <laughs> I remember you. You guys are the ones who, who listen on the other end. And, um, and walk people through and help people calm down and, and wait. They hear everything that's going on. They're not there, like, in person, but they hear everything that's going on. And then they're also, at the same time, coordinating the officers or the fire or the EMS and getting them to the scene as quickly as possible. So their, their role is huge. Um, well, absolutely. So, Let me ask you because obviously they have huge roles and they all do things differently now you are a phd and you treat all sorts of clients do you do you feel like first responders have some unique criteria or needs compared to i don't know i can't say an average client because there is no such thing but in terms of you know, the client that comes in for depression, anxiety, or uh, relationship issues? Sure. Um, so, you know, first responders, they, they're they different, and they approach mental health differently. Uh, they're less likely to come in for help in general, um, but they what they view as a problem or what they don't view as a problem that the average civilian or even the average therapist might view as an issue, they might not be thinking that's a problem. Like maybe they were in a shooting the day before. That might not bother them. Or they saw a, a five-car pileup and, uh, you know, there's five or six people that have died. That's not, that might not be traumatic to them. That's every day for some of them, depending on where they live. And, and they have prepared, they have trained for certain things. So whereas that would be our, that's not our norm. And don't get me wrong, a shooting is not normal. That's not, most officers do not go through uh, shootings. The majority of them don't actually. But it's something that they have mentally prepared themselves for. And, um, and we as clinicians, um, we, we haven't prepared ourselves for that. That's not our job. <laughs> so what bothers us or that we perceive that would be a problem, they don't see that as necessarily an issue. Does it need to be looked at? Sure. But it might not be as upsetting to them. And they might be coming in for something completely different. And you're thinking, well, you had this huge incident that happened last night or a week ago or whatever, and they're like, well, I don't, that was nothing to me. Like, you know, yes, it was important, but no, that was not, that's not why I'm here. And um, they also tend to have a darker humor. And uh, so if you don't, like as a therapist, if you don't have thick skin, um, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to build rapport as quickly. And they're really, they have trust issues. They their perception every day is life and death. And so they are looking at trust in a different way because they might have life and death trust in their coworkers, like in their fellow officers or their fellow firefighters or um, 
and their, with their paramedics or EMS and to keep them alive, but they might not necessarily like them. So their view of trust is very different. And for example, there was a time, <laughs> once upon a time many years ago, um, I sent my husband to, I was like, you should go to therapy and like just go get some stuff looked at and whatever. And he comes down, I sent him to this great therapist. I was in graduate school and he, he um, comes downstairs from the first therapy session. And I'll go, well, how did it go? Do you trust her? And he, go, he looks me dead in the eyes and he says, no, I wouldn't die for her and she wouldn't die for me. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And he was like, well, that's what trust is, is would I die for you and would you die for me? And I was like, that's not what I asked. Like, I asked, do you trust her? And so my perception of what trust was was very different than what he was thinking about. And I, when I gave him the version of trust that I was talking about, hey, you know, do you think she could hold on to your stuff? Do you think she can help you? Do you think that you can, that she's going to be able to hear what you have to say? He was like, oh, yeah, I totally believe that. And I was like, oh, great, so you do trust her. There's different versions of trust. And I well, find that to be is. very, very common. For their bar is set so high, isn't it? I mean, yes. if he's yes. thinking, didn't really relate as well as I could because I couldn't trust her with my life, and most people would say, yeah, she was pretty easy to talk to. I, I'm sure I'll go back. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so do you think, is that one of the most difficult um, parts or barriers to working with first responders? I think so. And I, I think building rapport is, is a really hard part, building that relationship that and making sure that the clinician is speaking the same language as they are. In, in that way, so knowing what their definitions are, asking. Um, we make a lot of assumptions, I think, about people and that we're all kind of on the same page on things. And um, I think we're, we're all individually so unique, it behooves us to ask some questions of what's your definition of trust or tell me about what your boundaries look like, right, and, and understanding what what their version of boundaries looks like because their version of boundaries is very different also. And that's one of the difficult parts of working with them is boundaries are really different because they're invited into people's um, very inner, uh, inner circle because they're invited every day, all the time, into people's worst moments in live action. I mean, how often does anyone find you know, come across someone who is naked, bleeding, crying, broken, having to pull them helplessly out of a vehicle. I mean, these are all very um, vulnerable positions, and they're invited into these spaces regularly and with an authority, right? And so um, they're, they have a lot of – they don't notice those boundary breaches as easily, and um, and it kind of bleeds out into the rest of their lives, which creates some dysfunctional relationships a lot of times. And um, some of the other barriers that they have is um, they have a lot of negative beliefs about mental health and the diagnosis, and then that the mental health can affect their job 
like mental health diagnosis can affect their job or if they're in therapy that they that can affect their job which up until recently that actually wasn't really true and um, that's different now there are laws now that are changed in the United States where that is different and um, regardless of whatever people are believing about reform and all these things it 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 still begs that mental health is um, something that's being looked at and, and pathologized, which is really unfortunate because it's creating more of a stigma these days. Um, but the other things that are barriers are the, um, that their work reinforces their poor boundaries. So you can make a lot of progress individually with them in session, talking about boundaries, getting them to reconceptualize them, and then work just reinforces poor boundaries. So it's like their day-to-day life is working against you in that way. And, um, you know, they have long schedules. They work three, four, five jobs sometimes. I have firefighters that will work four or five jobs to make ends meet. And on top of their, you know, 50 hours that they work at the firehouse, they will go and work somewhere else a couple of different jobs. And um, EMS does the same thing. And uh, so, and they have poor health insurance or just health care in general um, because of their, because there's oftentimes um, high deductible plans and things like that. And then all of them have the worst sleep ever. Carol, these people have the worst sleep. <laughs> their jobs right. are all over the place. So they work these insane hours. I mean, the the firefighters, I think, are, like, the worst ones because they work for uh, – a lot of them will work um, 48 hours at a time. So they could catch calls back to back to back and not sleep for a day, like, for literally, like, a 24-hour period of time, which is crazy. Yeah, that's – So they – You know, obviously, when I – I worked in a hospital setting, and it was an educational hospital setting. And so the interns, the first responders in that way, they were expected yes. to stay up for three days. And I don't know why we do that to the people that need the most rest. We know how important sleep yes. is. So let me just yes. ask this. You know, how do you build rapport with the average first responder, considering they do set the bar so high? Um, you know, it's about transparency and honesty and, um, and then practicing exactly what you preach. They are, um, they are, they look at your actions. They're using, they're looking at your micro movements and um, they're constantly sizing you up to see if you are if you are who you say you are so the second that you become inauthentic they know and they're out of there and you can tell and um, and it's like this with veterans too I used to work with veterans um, and I that was my first my first love and uh, and they are they are very much so the same but they it really has to do with um, you say what you mean and you mean what you say and then you practice all of those things. And, um, and you have to be very consistent. 
and be blunt and don't beat around the bush and, um, and very practical. They like practical solutions that have, and especially up front when you're like, when you first meet them, the biggest bang for your buck, right? So what's the, what are some practical things that you can give them? If you hear what their problem is, what are some things right up front that you can say or do or have them do when they go home um, or even in the session that will bring just a tiny bit of relief or calm or peace or whatever just right away? And if it sounds reasonable to them, which most of the time they're, if they're in your office, they're there because something's going on and they're looking for some help, um, they will they'll be like, oh, okay, and it gives them buy-in. Like almost immediately you build credibility. And um, the other thing is that uh, doing ride-alongs, I do ride-alongs regularly, um, which is with different departments. And, um, and I don't, I'm not, they're not my patients. I'm, I just call departments that are all over the place. I say, hey, can I ride Ride with your people. Can I work a night shift? Can I? And I always ask for the night shift because uh, the day shift is um, everything is really calm during day. <laughs> night shift is where stuff is going on. That's where like it's the rougher group. Um, so you you get a better idea of what's really going on, and um, and it builds. I mean, they. I've had people in one department that's. 50 or 60 miles away from another department, and I'll have somebody come in and say, hey, I heard you went on a ride-along. I'm like, how did you know about that? <laughs> how do you... And they all know each other. <laughs> and um, I'm like, oh, okay. I, you know, they're like, that's pretty cool. Like, I'm glad you're doing that. It, it helps us feel like you, under, you want to understand us. Like, yeah, I do. And, um, and it gives me a little bit of uh, what, what they call it, street credibility, <laughs> which is um, funny to me that I would have to be, build street credibility. You think your degree and, uh, you know, your pedigree is going to be enough. It's not. <laughs> um, they want to know that you understand their job. You have to understand your own job, and you need to understand their job. And... Um, so, you know, I, I walk over, my office is across the street from a firehouse. And, um, you know, if I have my daughter with me, we'll go, my daughter is five, and we go over and visit the firehouse. She gets stickers, she blows the horn and, um, you know, talks about the fire trucks and how great they are. And um, just simple rapport building like that speaks volumes. It, it speaks absolute volumes. Dropping food off. And, um, or I offer frequently, I will offer pro bono work and, or like, um, PTSD 101 seminars for free. Like, you know, here you can, you can have, uh, you know, send whoever you want to and they can come and sit and listen and, um, they don't have to say anything. It's, I'm not going to therapize anybody. Like nothing bad is going to happen. I promise. <laughs> and, uh, well, you're and not, they're, and you're talking about kindness and compassion and really being Absolutely. there for them, expecting nothing and being willing to uh, really just bond and show appreciation. Yes. That, that makes sense that they feel that genuineness and they can relax. 
You know, they don't feel yeah. like you're going to judge them or put them in a clinical box, so to speak. Because you yeah. are married, obviously, to a first responder, and you have yeah. other family members that are first responders, right? Yeah, yeah. My uncle, um, he he has has passed away, but he was a firefighter and a paramedic. And um, and then I come from a very and then my my he's not my uncle he's my my other he's my cousin but he could be my uncle he's older than me um, he's a retired firefighter and most of my friends I'm from California and most of my friends from back home are in fire service and um, you know I uh, it it's near and dear to my heart and um, I I feel that there's a huge need, a huge need. They they get forgotten a lot of times with the mental health piece of things, and um, it's so important that that they're not being pathologized for the fact that their jobs are are very unique. There is no job that is like this, and um, and you have to understand it. You have to be willing to understand, like, where they're coming from on that and get their culture, right? We talk a lot about culture in our industry. And, um, mm-hmm. and their, culture is, their culture is inherently different than any other culture I've ever come across. I mean, you can't even lump them in with veterans because they're so different. Well, that's interesting that you would say you can't lump them in with veterans because they're different. How are they different? Um, Because veterans are not active. Like, like they're not actively doing, um, like, doing the the military stuff. And even even the first responders that, or even the, the military folks who are active duty, most of them are not going to fall in line with how a first responder shows up on the scene. Military folks are going to have, they have different stuff going on. Yeah, they might all end up with like similar symptoms, but they have very different ways that they got them. And so uh, you have to, and the culture is very different. So, um, you know, military, you're on a base, like you live with your people, everybody's together and you also get moved around quite a bit. (laughs) That's not what happens in the, uh, like in the law enforcement community in fire, they do live together. They are a family and they eat together. They cook together. They have, most of them have pretty nice kitchens and, um, and they cook really well. And, um, and so they, they sleep in, in the same areas and whatnot, but in general, they're just, they're very different in how they approach their jobs. But uh, military folks don't show up on the scene unless they're in uh, military police. And they are unique also. I've worked with a number of military police, and they have very unique jobs. They are, that is a fascinating group to be around. And, and to, to, it's a privilege to work with them. And, um, I mean, I feel very privileged that any of them trust me. But um, certainly the, the MPs, because um, it, they're in both worlds. They, they have a foot in both worlds. 
So they, cause they have to follow the, the military culture, but then they also have that policing culture where they are showing up first on the scene. They are showing up to domestic violence. They are showing up to the car accidents and, um, you know, the lost kids and things like that. Did okay, I answer so the question? You sure did. And, you know, again, you come with this knowledge that so many people don't have because you live it. You're married to a first responder. You're a therapist. You treat first responders. Um, let me ask you, since this is a show about sex addiction and partner betrayal, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. because we do know that men in service and police officers and and first responders are much more prone to addiction because they have seen so much trauma. And yes. so I'm wondering, as a first responder spouse, what do you believe are the unique issues that, you know, kind of come along with healing, um, given the, that the responder may have had an affair or might have some compulsivity that needs to be treating, treated? Yeah, so there's a lot of unique issues that come up. The, you know, you have to be a special human being to be married to a first responder anyway. And all of mm-hmm. the uh, wives and husbands out there, we all know this. And, uh, you know, because you know that there are going to be days where you don't want to hear about what they did at work or you can't hear about what they did at work. And, um, and then they're not going to want to talk about it or they can't talk about it because maybe it's an open investigation of some sort and, um, and they can't talk about those types of things. And so you have to learn how to be okay with the fact that you don't know what they're doing sometimes. And how do you do that if they've had an affair? That transparency isn't necessarily this, it doesn't look the same as with my other Patients. About 90% of my clinic is first responders, but once upon a day, I used to treat um, like civilians, and um, and I and I worked with sex addictions and and things and other addictions also. But um, it looks very different because you're not going to necessarily be able to track where they're going all the time or figure out where. Ask them like, well, what have you been doing for the last like 12 hours? And they're going to say, I was at work. And that has to be good enough, even if they just disclosed yesterday that they were having an affair because they can't necessarily talk about it. And, um, and that, like, that takes a lot of mental energy from a spouse. And um, oftentimes I have found in my practice, I don't know about you, but I, in my practice I have found that many of the responders have had affairs at work. And so they might have had an affair with their partner or someone in their, in their um, admin or something like that, and they're not going to leave their jobs because they can't because their pension is wrapped up in it or, um, you know, that's like this is the only department that they can find or um, it, it's not like you can just transfer. Maybe they're in a small department. And uh, so there's unique ways of ha- helping these spouses work through that and, and helping these responders figure out, okay, how do you set down these really hard and firm boundaries with people that, that you had an affair with and they're still in your proximity within two degrees of you sometimes? 
And what does that look like? And um, it's, it's tough. It's, it's really, really tough. Um, and then the, that idea that many of the responders' friends will know about the affair and they will not have told the spouse. And the perception is that the relationship between the friend and the spouse is actually also close. Maybe they have barbecues together and they hang out and their kids are friends and all these things. And so then the spouse feels betrayed by the friend. Why didn't you tell me? How could you have known this? And you didn't say anything. We were just together the other day at the baseball game. You could have said something. This has been happening for however long. And, um, and really what there's a code, right? There's a culture where you don't say anything you, because there's, um, it's, it's not about the friendship per se with the spouse. It, it goes much deeper than that. Um, and so they might be, you know, the friend might be saying like, you know, to the first responder, Hey, you shouldn't be doing that. Like, you know, you're a jerk or you're a dick or whatever. Um, don't do this to, to your wife but they're not going to call up the, the wife or the husband or whatever and say, hey, so-and-so's having an affair. And, um, and so helping people work through that and helping these spouses understand that, yeah, this is, it, there's also this cultural piece. Um, and then uh, the last thing is that, that piece of um, remembering that the, the responder life each, each of these different groups, um, I always think it's really fun. The, the nurses have such a cool uh, culture about them, and, but this is who they are. And, and so it's, it's like they are, um, this is a part of their identity, uh, a big part of their identity. And so when the spouses, um, when they miss that, or they're like, well, you're married to me. Like I am, your identity should be wrapped up in like being my spouse or being like you or whatever. There's a, there's a balance between, um, and that is a healthy, you know, you want to have a healthy balance, but a lot of times the perspective is not that balanced where there's the responder, all they see themselves as is that a, as a police officer or as a firefighter or as a physician and um, and it's easy to to put that first and then put everything else after that. And helping the spouse manage, like, okay, we're seeing them for who they really are. And, okay, they're first responder, and then they are, you know, spouse, and then they're a parent, and then they're, you know, church member or whatever they are, right, and however they decide to label themselves or what makes their identity and um, helping them see them as a little bit more balanced too, but remembering that maybe they don't see themselves the same way that the spouse sees them, sees their uh, their first responder. Does that, does that make sense? Clear like mud. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm almost overloaded. Here's what I'm thinking. You know, I've worked Sorry. with <laughs> No. And partners forever, and I think what I realize for a first responder spouse is that 
there really has to be a lot of emotional maturity because the truth of the matter mm-hmm. is when there's been a betrayal at work or when he can't hold himself accountable with her because it's, it's private information, she has to be able to understand that and deal with her feelings separately from that yes. desire to know or desire to have him quit his job or that desire to have him move over to another unit. And yeah, I, I've been sitting here since you brought that up thinking it, it is such a crisis situation for so many partners, whether they be men or, or women. And, and to have that experience really does mean you have to have some extra special tools to help them cope. And yes, him, because he is going to be in the way of a temptation uh, 24-7 too. Yep. Yeah, it's a different approach. It, it certainly is a different approach. I have altered the way that I do my practice. Um, I am far more flexible than I used to be because, you know, a lot of my patients, they're on SWAT teams or they're on call. And so they'll come in, you know, with all their stuff on and either they're just coming off work or they are going to be going to work or they are like on a break and they're coming in and, um, and sometimes they get called out. And so, you know, they like run, they bolt. I, I, my office is right next to a door and they go flying out the door and it's fast. And, um, you know, they, um, it, you have to be willing to adapt and, um, and roll with what's going on. And, yeah, like I have high accountability. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, they toe the line in my office. <laughs> I cut, cut very little slack. <laughs> but when they need to go or they get called out for SWAT things and they're on a standoff and they've been there for 24 hours and they're like, I can't make it to my appointment, I'm still here and I'm watching it on the news and I know that they're out there. Yeah. Like, okay. Yes. Like clearly you're not going to be charged for this, <laughs> right? I'm going to be flexible with these things and I'm going to, and yeah, and I'll see you in a couple of hours or I'll see you tomorrow because it's a Sunday and I'll make, because I might not be able to see them for another month, but we need to get the work done. And, um, does it mean I, I'm always, um, flexible like that? No, I have high amount of self-care for myself. Um, and I have to practice what I want them to practice. And, and, and we talk about those things too, right? I'm very open and transparent with my people about what's going on. And, um, okay, I have baseball game on this day or we have this thing on this day, so this is the day that I can, I can make the exception and I can see you at this time or you know, I'll be at church, and then after here, I'll, go, I'll come in and I'll see you for a couple of hours. And they're like, okay, cool. That sounds good. Yeah, I probably need to go to church too. I'm like, great. <laughs> we'll meet up afterwards, right? And they are hearing the modeling of the behavior that, that creates that self-care and that balance. And, um, you know, living the practice, I think, is, is one of the key things here. You, li- you model what you want to see. Yeah, that's a very, very good point. I could talk to you all day. I mean, you've, you've got <laughs> such a wealth of knowledge, and, and you live 
their lives, I don't want to say vicariously, but certainly um, as part of the community. And so, you know, I thank you too, because I've heard you over and over and over say that you pay attention to what they need and you don't let anything stand in the way of that when it comes to money, time, and your service. If you were going to share with our listening audience, which are these four categories, sex addicts, partners, therapists, and coaches, what would you hope that they left the show knowing about first responders? That they're really great people, and they really, really love their community, and that they make mistakes, right? And um, we all make mistakes, and we all have... um, we all have things that make us unique, and uh, and we all want support. And so, um, you know, however, we all individually need that. We all have our own culture, and so there's we can't lump everybody together. So, like, get to know your responders that are in your area, and um, don't forget about your your EMS and your ER folks. And um, and your tow truck drivers. Some of the best stories you'll ever hear are from tow truck drivers. They are a oh. breed of their own, and they are awesome. <laughs> They're so interesting. And um, you know, when when stuff is going on, or when there's nothing going on, stop by and drop them off some food, or you know, door dash them some stuff, or whatever. And depending on where you live, you can't go there. And um, you know, listen to what the story is. We all want to be heard, and, and so do they. And um, most of the time what you will end up finding is that they are really open and they, they want to be in relationship with their communities. And, um, yeah. and they, are, they struggle just the same as everybody else, and it's hard to reach out. So I would hope that the, the therapists that they will – you know, before they treat a first responder, I hope that they will get some training. You can get training from um, Amy Morgan. She's out of Oklahoma. She does the Certified First Responder Counselor Certification, like, program. It's one of the first, like, nationalized programs that is out there. I took it way long time when she first started it. Um, I was already doing this work, but I was like, man, this is a this is a good, I knew everything that she was teaching, but I was like, man, this is really great, like, to help people understand the culture because this is what they don't teach, and, um, and it gets missed. And, you know, if people are doing EMDR, then they need to do EMDR um, first responder protocols and get trained in those, get trained in critical incident stuff, like with Dr. Waharo, um, who does the, the critical incident and assist programs and uh, protocols and things like that. Like, get the training before you work with the responder, or if you are working with them, start the training. But always lead with your transparent foot and the honest oh, I foot. Love that. Yeah. Well, Dr. Gina, it has been a pleasure, and I want our listening audience to know that you can be found at www.psychology-resources.com. And that's by looking at www.drgina.com. And, and what state are you out of? 
I'm out of Texas. We're located just south of Houston. And um, my Instagram is Rising with Peace. And um, actually, we're starting a nonprofit here um, for first responders specifically that's an online platform. So if they wanted to come in and do um, it's for an acute traumatic stress like stabilization protocol, it's not EMDR, but it's um, it is just for stabilizing emotional reactions to things. Um, we're gonna and we're gonna start offering scholarships to people so to first responders so they can um, start to get therapy because a lot of them times money is a barrier. So we'll help them pay their copays or we'll help them pay for whatever therapist they want to go to because they need a lot of options. There's great therapists out there. They just don't have access to them because sometimes they don't take health insurance and they, they can't afford it. So, um, yeah, so our, the nonprofit is uh, riseandrespond.com. And um, I'm, I, the other person who is building that with me, she's a firefighter and a chaplain. She is an amazing human being. Her name is Wendy Norris, and um, she, uh, she is an incredible wealth of information and, uh, and resource and a, a pioneer amongst firefighter females. <laughs> so, oh, that's good um, to know. Yeah. Well, thank, I'm thank so you so grateful. much. Thanks for Oh, yeah. I'm so grateful, too. And we'll have to have you back on so we can talk about all things like critical incidents and mass casualty, okay? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Make it a good one, and I know you will. Thank you. Bye. All right. Bye. So there again, it's Dr. Gina Dunkel. And you can see she really has a passion for first responders. For joining me for the show. And um, I'm going to end a little bit differently. I'm going to end with my grandmother's saying. My grandmother was a Christian scientist, so she had this amazing, amazing, uh, positive, grateful attitude. And she would say, let nothing disturb the harmony of your thoughts. And so we'll see you next week for more Sex Health with Carol, the coach. Make it a good one.